Welcome to The Conversation, a podcast about educational technology, learning sciences, and instructional design. In this last episode of the season, we go back to one of our earliest readings on the three learning principles that John Bransford and Suzanne Donovan discussed. I'd like to welcome Emily back to this episode. You joined us on episode seven when we talked about standards and essential questions. So it's great to have you again. And let's start with the article from Alexis Wiggins. What did you think of that? I really found this article very interesting because I think that it wasn't something that I necessarily thought about, about shadowing a student Mm -hmm. um, to kind of see how their schedule actually is. And I think I probably haven't thought about it because I'm a little bit closer in age to the students in high school. Mm. So it's something that is a little bit more familiar to me. Um, But I really liked that Alexis kind of said that she would change most of what she had done originally. I thought that was a very interesting statement to make. And I was trying to think about if there was a way we could avoid wanting to make these complete changes um, to everything that we had done in the past, just based on that one shadowing of a student. I think it's always interesting and important to want to improve and to reflect on your own practices as a teacher. But um in her key ideas of what she took away from her observations, it, she made it kind of seem like she wanted to change a lot of what she had done originally. So I was thinking about like how we can best prepare to teach those students and not want to change everything that we had done from the first year. Well, I think that's where the constant feedback and we've talked about exit tickets in some way, although that's kind of more focused on the concepts themselves. Um, right. They don't really talk, because I know the key takeaway that Alexis had was sitting all day. And so that almost needs to, requires that you be able to know what students are doing across different classes. So part of it would be understanding their point of view through you know the exit ticket and also maybe just being more reflective for me, I thought with the sitting all day thing and, and having them get up and stretch reminded me a little bit of, of the um, what we've read about the brain and the importance of just having that time to disengage so that your brain can take its time to absorb the things. And getting up and taking a five-minute break seems like that would work, although they don't talk about it in that context. But I think like in, indirectly, that would be something that the neurologically that would actually have, have benefits as well. So I I would guess it's a balance between just getting feedback and and then also understanding and taking into account a lot of the things that we've read and try to implement it, I guess. Right. I know one of the teachers that I'm currently working with, she teaches double period math. So students have, instead of 41 minutes, they get 82 minutes of math. Mm -hmm. And it's a really long time to have students be sitting in the exact same classroom. So during the point where they switch classes, she tells them they're allowed to do anything except math. So they're not even allowed to sit and like ask her questions about a problem Mm -hmm. or try to continue working on their work. Um, And she has like balls in the back that they could throw around or different things that they could play with to try to like get them to have something different in their schedule. So I think that's kind of a, an interesting implementation that I thought about when I was reading this as well. How old are these kids? Um, they're in seventh grade. I mean, I think everyone would need a break Yeah. Um, <laughs> after a while. And I, I like that they talked about how, you know, if you've been through a long PD session, you know how exhausting it, it can be. And imagine mm-hmm. your students in that same position. 
And I think that's one of the hardest things about this ability to kind of think from the student's point of view is that it's really, it's not that people don't want to. I think it's it's just the tendency to think of the class more from the teacher's point of view. It's not like a personal flaw or anything. It's just more yeah. like a <laughs> habit. It's like when mm. we talked about uh, like the SAMR model and I was kind of surprised at how many students were applying it from this teacher's point of view. I kind of had that thought as well, that it's really hard to engage in that empathy part, which the article talks about a lot and really understand how our students experiencing it. And it's not, you know, it's, it's me as well. You need to make conscious effort to do that. Right. And you had a question about the difference between four class and eight class periods. Yeah, so um, I've heard certain schools that do block scheduling, so they do four classes a day kind of for the longer period of time, mm-hmm. and that's what they were saying um, in this in the article as well. That's kind of the schedule that Alexis was following, mm-hmm. and I, I know that um, some of the schools that I've heard that my friends have been in in Queens do the block scheduling where students will come in at different points of the day. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that is better, like going back to what you were saying, thinking about um, the entire module we did talking about the brain and how that functionality works for students. I wonder if it's better to have just four topics covered for a longer period of time mm-hmm. um, in the day or if putting eight classes a day where students have that one lunch period free um, and they have to soak up information for eight 41 minute periods. Mm -hmm. Is that like what would maybe be a better model or are both models? Okay. Like, I don't know what, um, what the difference would be. We actually switched from an eight to a four class period in the middle of my high school year. So yeah. So basically having eight 45-minute classes or 50-minute classes to a a bunch of 90-minute. I can't say with precision what I thought about it back then. I think in my head, (laughs) probably it felt less overall. Like the 45, 50-minute classes felt a little bit less intense. But Mm -hmm. that's actually not a good reason. Because 45 minutes flies by. and It does, um, yeah. If you account for the time it takes to settle in and transition and then wrap things up, you really have... 30 minutes maybe to do something. Um, whereas in 90 minutes, around 90 minutes, I think it's a lot easier for you to settle in and focus, mm-hmm. but probably not a whole lot more than 90 minutes. I know like university classes can go much higher, especially, you know, if you're taking some intense versions, um, there are courses that are like four hours long, which is just right. impossible to, <laughs> not impossible, yeah. but it's really not a pleasant experience for mm-hmm. either teachers or students. So my personal preference would be having the longer periods. I'm almost certain there would be some kind of empirical study that might do this mm-hmm. comparison. I'm not sure. In your school, or what kind of setup do they have? Yeah, so in all the schools that I went to in my life, and also the one that I'm working in, they have the regular 41-minute periods. It's a nine-period day. They get a lunch period. Um, and some students don't even have a lunch period. I remember when I was in high school, I actually didn't get a lunch period because my schedule was so packed with AP classes I was taking and different honors-level courses. So I think that that's also a sacrifice you make with having those nine periods that maybe it would have been more beneficial to have a block schedule where some days so that I would have like a lunch period or time for a little bit of a break. Other than that, it's for the most part, what I've been exposed to is that nine period, 41 minutes each day. Not yeah. having a lunch break seems problematic. Yeah, oh. <laughs> it definitely was. <laughs> so what else do you think about that article? 
Something else that I thought was interesting is when she was talking about her key takeaways, she said something about sacrificing some content in order Mm -hmm. to uh, do what she needed to do, what she wanted to change. So I was wondering if it's okay to just sacrifice content like that, because I know that there's so much pressure put on the content and making sure that your students, and in some schools, there is a lot of pressure to teach to a test, which I think is problematic in itself. And I know that um, socio-emotional well-being of students should come first. But I was wondering how you balance that and not sacrifice content or if it's okay to sacrifice content in that instance. I would guess it's okay if it's in small doses. So, I mean, you're not mm-hmm. like dropping algebra or something. Yeah, right. You're, you know, taking, I think the, the article is talking about how she would do it. This is something that I would I would do if I was able to. So it actually doesn't even talk about like empirically how that would happen. Um, right. I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast is an advice that a professor gave me when I was in grad school, which is that sometimes you have to slow down to speed up, which I Mm -hmm. always thought to be a really helpful reminder that, you know, you can march through the content, but if your students are not getting it, you're not really, uh, you're not still not really progressing. And if it means just taking a brief break, either in the sense of like an actual break or just slowing down and making sure everyone is where they need to be, that has longer term benefits than if you feel the need to just go through everything because of other pressures. What do you think? I think that I was taking it when I was thinking about it originally, I was taking it to an extreme of like sacrificing part of a unit or maybe something oh. that they might need. But it does make a lot more sense to like to sacrifice here and there. And I do see that in the curriculum building in the school that I'm in and how there are certain things that you see might be unnecessary because you're going to touch upon it later. So it's not needed in a unit. So you could drop it, mm-hmm. but it's something that you're going to reach later on. So I think that something along those lines of that model would make sense. And it would probably help students a lot too, so that you're not jamming everything into one um, unit or one part. Yeah, and then another possibility is to take some of that time and say, let's say in this five minutes, I would have covered this concept and use a kind of a flipped classroom approach and say, watch this thing at home. And then that way you can extend the period and then not really have wasted it. Or maybe you can lecture while they stretch or something. Yeah. So they're still <laughs> listening. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess there are ways around it. I don't know if this is also something you need to do every period when they were talking about hands-on activity. Mm -hmm. And it was saying to make sure that you build in a hands-on move-around activity every single class and every single day. And I think with a block schedule um, that she's describing, that's probably a lot easier to do because you have 90 minutes or so to work with rather than the 41. But I know she said that would be part of the sacrifice to do a hands-on activity. But what I was thinking about was, does an activity that's hands-on necessarily mean that content is being sacrificed? Because I think that there are certain hands-on activities that you could do with content that are very exploratory and actually help students understand better. I mean, I would agree with you. I think they're not mutually exclusive and that hands-on is more of the practice of the concept, right? So that's when they're not necessarily teaching it, but they are actively applying it, hopefully, in Mm -hmm. the hands-on part. So yeah, I would agree with you that it's not, Mm -hmm. um, it shouldn't be thought of as a, uh, a sacrifice of content. Right. Yeah. So what else I was thinking about is, She was talking a little bit about student choice Uh and how that's really important in the classroom because their students 
in the schedule when she was shadowing as well, kind of just sit there and are participating passively throughout the day. So giving them some options to do, I think would probably make their experience in class a lot better. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, what are the best ways to incorporate some student choice within your lesson or within your class? Right. And this is when she wrote about how little choice they have in what they're doing. Right. Right. I mean, that certainly depends on the class and ways to give them choice through either topics or like through something like UDL where they have a choice of how they want to engage in the material. Usually they don't get a lot of choice when it comes to content because there are certain contents they can't choose not to cover. But I think at the very least, if they can choose or make choices in how they engage with it, I think that would help. And that's kind of what some of the things we talked about is trying to offer. Like if they feel like they're involved in the decision-making process, that helps, that gets them more engaged as well. So I know that they also touched upon the difference of passive absorbing and grappling with different information that they're given. So in the passive aspect, students kind of just sitting and absorbing the information, but not really interacting with it. Mm -hmm. And then grappling in that they have that opportunity to interact and really think a little bit deeper. So I was thinking about how we could take students from that passive absorbing into grappling. So with the information that they're given in class, rather than just having them sit and listen to a lecture or take notes or um, just copy guided notes, which I feel like sometimes is the model that teachers can fall into. Mm -hmm. So I was just trying to think about different ways, again, to integrate that grappling. And maybe that would even be incorporating some student choice where you could have students do a couple of different things instead of just making them do the one thing that you want them to do. Mm -hmm. Because I think that that might set them into the passive piece right away. Right. And also if just teachers just give them a choice in how they want to take notes. Because I remember in high school where teachers required you to take notes in a certain way and they were very sometimes even just say, I'm going to write this on the board and you copy exactly what I wrote down. That seems to be unhelpful to say the least because... Mm -hmm. I think there's this idea that if there's some manifestation of work, then that means students are engaging, whereas you can copy something passively down. And maybe mm -hmm. that type of note taking doesn't work for them, but maybe a graphic organizer or giving them a choice in something like yeah. that would be more helpful. And also maybe just like I said, with flipped classrooms is where they are absorbing the lecture at home. And yeah. in, in class, that time could be used for the hands-on grappling yeah. part. Yeah, and I think that's that's a good way to kind of combat that so that your students aren't just getting bored all the time in your class and not really actually thinking about the information in a like deeper way. Yeah. I thought I really liked that they were talking about too asking students their their essential questions at the beginning of each class. Mm -hmm. I think that giving them the opportunity to voice their questions and also maybe even thinking about using those as the essential question for either the day or the unit um, or whatever you're talking about, it gives them again like some more uh, autonomy over what they're doing within the unit. So I thought that really made me think about my own essential questions and going back to my own unit plan, like really. Thinking thinking about what students might ask about the unit and what's mm -hmm. or what students might want to know rather than just thinking about questions that I necessarily want them to know the answer to mm. if that makes sense yeah um, how did you go back and think about your own essential questions well I went back 
because I realized that some of them were a little teacherly. So I needed to try to figure out how I could communicate them to students better. And I think that the exercise we did in the voice thread this week really helped me as well. Mm. Um, And I think it, it did lead me to change one or two of my essential questions because of the different way that I was thinking about it. But I went back and I read the questions and I thought about if I was sitting in a class learning this topic, would I ask that question? Or would I even care to answer that question if it didn't make sense to me? So I think that's kind of the approach that I took when I went back to look, just trying to put myself in a student's perspective and see what that question looks like from a student rather than a teacher. I thought both readings focus a lot on student questions, the importance of them, but also the importance of getting them used to asking good questions. Good, not in the sense that there are bad questions per se, but more in the way of how do you ask or how do you frame questions in interesting ways that are maybe more closer to essential questions. But I do like that idea of having, or the recommendation was to start every class with student questions specifically and then spending time addressing them. I mean, this would work a lot better in a 90-minute period. And if not that, then doing the exit ticket, making sure that students have a feel comfortable asking them. Because I think the other thing is that maybe students are have questions, that, but they're reluctant to ask. Yeah, and that also, um, in your saying that, made me think about, too, one of the quotes from the article said questions are an invitation to know a student better and create a bond with that student. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that some students that might be a little hesitant to ask questions might have a model where the teacher might be quick to decline certain students from their questions or even just decline questions at that time. Um, I always try in my teaching to take student questions mm-hmm. because I think that Also, um, one student's misconception or question that they have, Mm -hmm. the whole class might have that question, but they're just not willing to say it. And if I address it, it kind of helps aid in that. So I think that it's definitely better to take the questions from students rather than fight them on it and decline and tell them to ask it later or to wait till the end. I think it it might even make the lesson um, or the topic that you're covering more powerful if you have those different pockets of questioning in between where you're asking higher level, higher order thinking questions and having your students even ask those higher level thinking questions. And I think, again, if you follow that model Mm -hmm. and that connects to the second reading as well, if you follow that model more, it will help your students be able to develop their questions. Some of it depends on what the question is. I mean, if it's a question that you're going to get to or you're going to address later on or something Mm -hmm. like that, then maybe you don't need to feel the pressure to respond right away. Towards the end of the reading, they said that overall these changes lead to better backwards design. So Mm -hmm. if you use these three takeaways that she realized, it will help you backwards design better for your units and for um, your students. So I was wondering what aspects of backwards design would this affect? Like how beneficial are the three key takeaways to your overall planning? Some of these are inst- are related to the instructional design, and some of these seem like empathy-related things that teachers should do, just appreciating how much time students are passive and how much time that they're being told what to do. The one that's related more specifically to instructional design would be some of the things that we talked about just now, either having them do certain part of the passive stuff at home or giving them breaks mm-hmm. uh, and then building in the hands-on stuff, giving them a chance to move around, get up, stretch. 
I would think that every subject should be able to have room for that. So with the next reading, we go back to one of the first readings we did with the Bransford and Donovan, where they go back to the three principles of learning and then the different kinds of classroom lenses. Mm -hmm. So what did you think about this reading? I really enjoyed this reading, and I think that it had a lot of good information that I was able to pull just for questions and things that really made me think about everything that we've talked about so far, Mm -hmm. um, and then just how we can expand upon it as well. So I really enjoyed it. I was thinking about specifically right at the beginning, I think it's like the third page in, um, on page 571. Mm -hmm. It said that students need many opportunities to work with a new or recessive concept. And I thought that was really interesting. So students kind of need the opportunity to work with a topic or something that you're doing more than maybe just that one 41-minute period that we've been talking about. I was thinking about how can we create these multiple opportunities and Mm -hmm. thinking about is a hands-on activity and a homework assignment really enough? Because usually that seems to be some sort of the model what teachers will do. So is that really, would that really count as enough like multiple opportunities to work with these concepts. The way I read this part was when they talked about giving the multiple opportunities, I was thinking about the spiral curriculum again of having concepts. And I think even in their example, they were talking about fractions, I believe, to make sure that they're concepts that different units would keep returning to so that they're not one off. Having multiple opportunities within a unit, which is kind of what you were saying, but also mm-hmm. having it between units and between different levels, different years, so that these are concepts. Right. I mean, in math, but in, in any other concepts, these are things. I mean, why else would you be re- learning it if you only le- use it one time ever in your life? Right, exactly. Um, That's true. And I think a lot of it is also just to make it explicit or make those connections clearer. That's how I kind of interpreted it. So another question that I had was on page 571, it says that everyday experiences provide little, if any, opportunity to become familiar with the phenomenon of interest. So I was thinking about although preconceptions and outside experiences are important in the classroom, it kind of seems like they're not enough to develop student interest. So these experiences can't be enough we have to kind of mold them more. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about how can we better develop the student interest in the classroom? And then by doing that, does that come by simply addressing experiences and preconceptions or like what, what does that look like? I mean, it's good to connect with the students' everyday experience, but sometimes like, for example, in science, they really need special tools to be able to examine it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where the classroom environment would be helpful to Mm -hmm make those misconceptions or preconceptions to open them up for questioning so -hmm. that if they have preconceptions or misconceptions, the class environment would be a place for them to talk through them. And yeah, I can definitely see that about being more relevant to science and uh, history than math, maybe. I'm sure there are misconceptions in math, but I'm trying to think of one I think for me, misconceptions and preconceptions are more like one of the kind of myth, like the learning styles thing we talked about, mm-hmm. where something something that seems logical or mm-hmm. something that seems to explain everyday phenomenon becomes your way of seeing the world and you don't get a chance to interrogate it. I don't know if that happens in math as easily. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that a lot of the misconceptions that we think about in math 
I would say somewhat procedural. Like mm. there are cer- certain ways that you're solving problems or doing something specific, for example, like factoring. And then sometimes the misconception would be that students will use the incorrect type of factoring because of the way the problem might look. So if they don't look a little bit deeper and kind of problem solve the problem itself first before um, they go into the type of factoring that they're going to use. So I think that would kind of align with what you're talking about with the misconceptions. I thought it was interesting where at some point they asked students to reason through three competing theories of evolution and using that both as an opportunity to learn about science and well evolution in a historical context, but also using it as a way of overcoming or addressing their possible misconceptions. Because I think a lot of the theories, of, at least in the theories of evolution, it is possible to think of like having misconceptions of evolution, but having them address it indirectly through through the research. I thought that was, that was an interesting approach. Right, yeah, I thought that was interesting as well, because it was saying how they kind of underestimate the amount of variation in a common species, so because they they aren't, I guess, as exposed to it, Um, which is kind of what you were saying before also, that some of the things, especially in science, it needs a little bit more of that pull from the teacher to get them to think about those experiences. On page 574, they talk about how the engagement with problem solving and strategy use displayed by the Beth Math students is undermined when students think of math as a rigid application of given algorithms to problems. And I felt like that is exactly how I viewed math as a student. Mm-hmm. And um, that math was just applying stuff. And I was wondering, what do you kind of thought about that? And is it that much different now? I actually underlined that when I was reading um, because I thought it was interesting as well. But I think that it's a little bit of both. So I think that we're still stuck in a little bit of using math as a rigid application. Um, So trying to give students the tools or the formula and having them use it and tell them every single possible way that they could use it or see it on the regions. And I think that's Unfortunately, when we look at it that way, that's what gives that rigid application to students. And that's what makes them, I think, a little bit less inclined to want to participate in math or like math. When you engage students in problem solving and strategy, it really does develop some of the best mathematics students. And I found that in a lot of the honors courses that I was teaching, as well as some of the other ones that I had observed in, I think there was a lot more engagement in problem solving. And instead of maybe doing an entire lesson that day, you focus on one problem that was a lot more difficult that you had to unpack. And I think that students seem a lot more interested in that than just going through a worksheet and using the same formula for the entire period or something of that nature. So I think there's also kind of a disconnect in based on the honors level courses and then if they just have a regular regents level course or maybe there's a remedial course. Mm -hmm. And I think that... Unfortunately, some of the students that are in a regular level or a remedial level might get left behind and see that it's just a rigid application because maybe teachers think that it's not going to be beneficial to them to use problem solving. Mm -hmm. But I think that problem solving is a skill that is transferable across multiple curriculums. Mm -hmm. So I think losing that in something so important as math kind of hurts them in the long run. Yeah, and then in this, I guess in the sentence just before what I cited, they were talking, they're talking Mm -hmm. about how. A lot of things, and I would say most things in math, are things that were invented. I was wondering, what do you think about the idea of, of teaching math or approaching math, not necessarily teaching every set unit that way, but approaching math through a, almost a historical lens? What do you think about that idea? 
I definitely think that's um, an interesting idea. And I also think it would help students because a lot of times when you give students a formula or you tell them that this is the way you do something, a lot of them do ask why. Like they're not really sure where it came from or what it means or why we do it. And then again, there are those students, unfortunately, that they'll just do it and they don't necessarily seem to want to know more. But I think if you give them the opportunity to know more, they'll Mm -hmm. be interested in it. So I liked that they were talking about place value and the 10 Mm -hmm. pebbles and it shows because each person was in a different place value. So in the 10,000s, the thousands, the hundreds, tens and ones. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a great way to teach place value, right? Because you can use visuals with it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that looking at things through historical ones could be helpful for students. I think that it would definitely be difficult to do for certain units. And I think that it might take a little bit more time, especially if sometimes I know in one instance, somebody asked me where a formula came from and I wasn't even quite sure. And I said, I had to look it up for them Mm -hmm. and we would go over it in the next class. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that you would just want to make sure that you're prepared for that and that you think on a level of what the students are really going to ask you. And and I think part of it also just goes back to the essential questions, which mm-hmm. where you're asking about more conceptual questions. And I don't know what grade this would be addressed, like how different the number system that we use, like Arabic numbers, or technically Indian, I guess, numbering system, and how useful it is for doing just, well, any kind of math, but like, if, even if you just think of like addition and subtraction, as opposed to trying to do it using Roman numerals. I don't know if people have tried it, but it's not easy. Even that concept, like they're both number systems, but just because the notations are different, they actually has a very big difference in how, what you can do with them. And I feel like that would be kind of interesting for some students to think about. Right. No, I think that's definitely interesting as well. And I'm sure most students don't necessarily think of things that way, right? Because if you pose a different question, like, oh, if I did this with Roman numerals, how would that change? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of them would might freak out and think <laughs> <laughs> that they would have right. to use Roman numerals all the time. Just for fun, give them a test yeah. where you <laughs> tell them to use Roman numerals and see what they, see see what what they, they can do. It. Like, and then say, like, but it's, all, it's just numbers. What's the mm-hmm. difference? <laughs> This reading also went into first and second order concepts, and I was wondering what you think of that. I think I got a little lost in that section because I was unsure what they were talking about regarding subject and discipline, like what specifically they were addressing. For me, it's like, and I I hope I'm interpreting this correctly, is that first order are the big questions, the discipline being mathematics being the discipline, for example. Right. I keep using math. You are the math teacher, right? Yes. You have a math teacher, not the math teacher. Yes. But, um, I okay, just making sure. And then second order would be, subject would be like trigonometry. I think that's kind of my take on it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too, but I wasn't 100% sure. Right. And I think they were saying how oftentimes the focus is on the second order questions. So if you're teaching trigonometry or geometry, then that tends to be the focus. But then there are not enough questions about the larger discipline. Like even in my field of educational technology, where oftentimes the courses are focused on the second order knowledge of, like in this case, like technology for the classroom, that kind of thing. And the first order question, I mean, we have almost like a philosophy class that we call technology and society, where we're talking about what is technology, because I think oftentimes students say technology is computers, internet, that's what they think of. But technology right. is anything that we have to invent is a technology, including writing, language, mm-hmm. math. Right. Um, and that would be the first order question. And I, I often find that that knowledge is actually really important just 
for students to be able to get into or more adequately into the second order knowledge. And I'm assuming that's the case with other disciplines as well. I think that the second order questions and concepts, like you said, are what seem to be more present, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I think that, again, the being able to make a connection to either an essential question, like for the year or something of that, like things that you want students to be able to walk out of Algebra 2 mm-hmm. and know, not necessarily walk out of the trigonometry section of Algebra 2 or walk out of the factoring section, right? So that's like interesting as well, because I think that those first order questions also would tie together everything that you've been doing in a sense. I don't know if this would be considered first order question, but I know that a lot of, well, probably all geometry and trigonometry taught in high school anyway, builds on the premise of a flat plane, right? So you're Mm -hmm. like, these theorems work only if you are talking about a triangle on a flat plane and not on a spherical plane. And that assumption is important, but also the important to know that it is an assumption and you need to make these prior assumptions before you any of this even works um mm-hmm. i guess i'm reminded of that because the the video from last week for the pre-reading they talked about spherical trigonometry or something like that and it's that type of thing that i find really fascinating and i don't know if it'll be th- something that would engage students as well to kind of go back on those first order questions and think about these larger discipline specific questions. I think that those are really interesting questions that I think students probably might not even think about because they're just so used to the type of questions that they're seeing in class. Mm-hmm. And maybe their teacher never really posed something like that to them where, well, this could actually be in a 3D space. It doesn't have to be 2D, but what would that look like? How would it change it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think going back to what we were talking about with how science We were saying that students kind of need a little bit more help kind of recognizing those concepts. I think a lot of times, even though we live in a three-dimensional world, students have a very hard time conceptualizing 3D. Like I know even in elementary level, I've been doing a lot of tutoring uh, where they've been talking about volume and surface area and area. Mm. And students have a really hard time if I'll ask them, okay, so what shape are we talking about? And they'll tell me a circle. I have to tell them, well, a circle is two-dimensional. So we can't say, we can't find the volume of a circle, right? Mm. So they have to kind of make that connection, like, oh, we're talking about a sphere. It's interesting, too, because I think students have, like, struggle with that 3D aspect. Yeah, I mean, especially since a lot of the times when you're illustrating this, either on a book or a board or piece of paper, it is a flat plane. And exactly. Unless you have a physical sphere or a simulation on a computer or something mm-hmm. where they can rotate it, where they can visualize it. And I guess that that is one thing that technology can do, which is to do that kind of visualization. It kind of makes sense that they would have these misconceptions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's a good, uh, that's a good example. On page 576, they talked about for they were talking about people with expertise in mathematics um, yeah. and how there might be no core concept to them. Um, I think they were talking about whole number counting, right? Oh, so like counting like one, two, three, four and up because it's done so automatically. So I was thinking about how do we, we as teachers even just combat 
are expert blind spots. I know that we need to just kind of think more at a student level, but if you just start presenting whole number counting to students in elementary school, they might be a little concerned because they might might not have seen it yet or they're not really sure where it comes from. It was just interesting to me to think about how we ourselves might have these blind spots. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I thought about that a lot too when I was when I'm when I've been working on my unit plan about how I can think about well this might not be my core concept but it's a core concept for my students. We touched upon it in the other readings in terms of how just because you're an expert doesn't mean you're a good teacher specifically because of these blind spots where things you right. take for granted are not necessarily things that students would know just offhand unless you take yeah. the time to explain it. And I think that's why it helps to do a lot of the backwards design. I guess that's the point of it is to be able to revisit it and then through the essential questions, the well-designed assessments that you are able to refocus it on like what do students need to know ahead of time or maybe even going back to the misconceptions and preconceptions part and of course giving students the chance to ask questions. I was thinking about like ways that we could like, what are some ways that we could help students monitor and question their own thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that goes hand in hand with the importance of being productive questioners, uh, which they talk about on page 580. So thinking about how we can help students be able to monitor themselves. And I feel like as students learn how to question their own thinking or themselves, they'll be able to better question others. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think if they just start to believe that anything that they're thinking is true or true until the teacher tells them that it's not, um, mm-hmm. it's not going to be helpful to them to in using metacognition or anything um, of that nature to learn or to um, further their knowledge on a certain topic. I thought the part about, um, I guess this is on page 579, where they uh, they showed how the example of the student who was asking good questions, but not necessarily knowing why, right. like saying, I'm supposed to ask questions, so that's what I mm-hmm. did. Um, I think that's hopefully an aha moment for the teacher to right. build that in, or at least give students an understanding of why these questions are helpful. I mean, ideally, classes would be designed more around student questions and the teacher's questions. But I think that's something that you need to, as a teacher, you need to design into your unit and not kind of expect students to know how to do that offhand. Right, I agree. And I guess that also kind of connects to the group discussion part. Yeah, because I was thinking about how we can moderate group discussions better so there aren't the pitfalls. So I think, again, one of those pitfalls of the questioning is that students think that they're just supposed to ask a question. So even <laughs> if their question is good and valid, they they just think they're just asking questions. So that's what matters. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I think the same way in group discussion, students might be having um, really productive conversation, but they might not be thinking even more into it just because you know, there's so many pitfalls in that a student might not participate because it's a group and they feel like they don't need to contribute or one student might dominate the group and take over the discussion and not give others the opportunity to voice their opinions. So I was just thinking about how how we could better moderate that. And I know the reading gave a few examples of how to do that as well. And I know they were saying how you could have students rate their group effort. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that that was really interesting because I think that you might get some very truthful ratings, but you'll also probably get some very false ratings of students yeah. that they're not going to 
rate their performances low performing just because they don't want the teacher to see that and then think that they didn't contribute even though they didn't. Um, so I think there's pitfalls within their rating mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I did like the fact of having them pause and think individually or write something down individually before going into a group or even while they're in the group. Especially, I think, one of the struggles for students that might not be as willing to participate in a group discussion is they don't, they can't maybe think offhand of something they want to say. So if you give them a second to pause and individually write maybe one thing down or one question or one interesting fact they found in whatever they were talking about, then mm -hmm. they can go into the group prepared to say something. And if yeah. they have something that's the same as another student, that would lead to a productive discussion of why they picked the same thing to be interesting or things of it, like that. Yeah, that's a good idea. And I think a lot of these techniques help make sure that, you know, one person doesn't dominate if everyone comes with something to contribute. You can also set time limits or give them roles to, to play so that um, mm -hmm. they all have something to do. But yeah, I, I thought the rating of the group dynamic part was also interesting. They didn't really go into it that much. And I kind of mm -hmm. wrote that down as well, because I wasn't sure even if they would understand what group dynamic means. I'm not even sure I understand it in yeah. the way that they're using it like are you asking about how the you know the vibe or something like yeah. <laughs> it's very um it's very nebulous and i'm sure they have it somewhere maybe it's on a footnote or, or something yeah but yeah i always find that the rating when you ask peers i mean this is true for peer review as well where they are hesitant to either people are hesitant or they don't know how to accurately give or rate one another Mm -hmm. either because they want they don't want to offend the other person or or they just don't know, don't know how to like the something they think is good but is actually not good or vice versa right um, so on page 584 specifically they talk a lot about the different classroom environments um so creating a culture of self-explanation in the classroom and then they talk about community centered knowledge centered learner centered and assessment centered mm -hmm. um, environments so I was wondering how we create this best environment for our students how do we find a balance between all of these mm -hmm. and then I was also curious if there's one classroom environment that might be better than another I went back and looked at the introduction that we read probably in this second week or third week um, mm -hmm. where they talked about the four type of classrooms. They're just kind of wrapping it up here. And yeah. for me, these are, I mean, they talked about these as lenses. So it's not that you should design an, a classroom that is just community-centered or just knowledge-centered, but probably you want to design a classroom that emphasizes each of these at different points so that the benefits of each are are able to surface at some point in the teaching or in you know when the in, when the students are in there and also not to over rely on one over the other so like if it's too nice centered then maybe you can have too much lecture even though lecture has its place or just direct mm -hmm. instruction in general so you kind of want to divide it up the way you see fit but definitely have a balance I don't think this is necessarily a best one. I think all four would need to be balanced in some way. And I think in terms of how we find the best balance, I think if you look at your unit and try to think about like either, and I don't even want to color code it or something, but to at least tag or make notes and see at what point these different lenses are relevant. And if you right. notice that there's a lot of knowledge-centered stuff in there, but not a lot of learner-centered or community-centered activities, then maybe that would be a good good way for you to introduce some of that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I also just wanted to note about the metacognition part. I think they gave an example of young kids engaging in metacognitive work. And mm-hmm. I thought that was good to see that because I think people think that metacognitive stuff is really high level that all, all the students are able to do. And certainly it is easier for older students to do that, but I, but younger kids are certainly able to do that as well. And I, you know, for those who are teaching younger kids, elementary school kids, to keep that in mind and remember that they're also capable and should have the opportunity to do metacognitive work. Right. And I think even if you kind of establish that with younger kids as well, it'll make it even come even easier for older students because it'll be something that they recognize. Yeah. All right. So one last question I have is, looking back at the semester, what topics, readings did you find most interesting? What resonated with you the most? I found a lot of connection just in my everyday life as well as what we've been doing to the expert and novice learners reading. Um, And I think that that section really resonated with me, especially even connecting back to this today, just thinking about how we have those expert holes in our thinking and we need to make sure that we think of those core concepts for our students. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's something that I always try to look back to when I'm thinking about different things that I'm doing for my units and things like that. And also I think another, one of the other topics that stands out to me um, was when we discussed the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, again, that connects to what we did today, too, and just thinking about how your students' brains function and what's the best way to get the information across to them because uh, what your best practice, what you think your best practice might be, might not be um, their best practice. So just kind of thinking about um, how that works in your classroom as well. Yeah, I mean, I know that that those readings were not easy, and people didn't mm-hmm. went crazy about it, except Kelly. Um, <laughs> I mean, even I struggled with it because of all the dendrites and stuff. But I think that was definitely one of the readings that I keep thinking about because it's just it's actually something that's not theoretical, um, yeah. at least in the way that we talked about. You know, we talked about different frameworks and, and models and how they're helpful. And then we talked about how learning styles are not real. And all these are kind of models or and abstractions, but the mm-hmm. brain is not an abstraction. The brain is there. And to at least at this point in our understanding of the brain, that these neurons, and this is how people learn. And these are things that we know helps the brain wires and rewires itself when it learns. We can actually now see it, you know, see those connections being made literally, you know. So... Mm-hmm. I think that wraps up this episode and this season. I really want to thank all of you, especially the students who took part in this idea of mine, do a podcast for this class. I really do want to continue this. It does take up a lot of time. It takes about five to six hours for me to edit these episodes. But I really appreciate you taking the time to not just participate, but also listen. So I hope you all have a great rest of the semester and a great summer. And Emily, thanks for signing up for a second episode and have a great weekend. Thank you, too. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye.